Um, so before we get going, we're going to look at some specific clips, but I wanted to ask the audience really, um, how many of you, could you put your hands up if you would like, or you, your ambition is to work in TV in general? Okay, and how many of those would like to work specifically in wildlife filmmaking? Okay, and this is the general question, how many of you would have loved to work on Blue Planet 2? Okay, great, all right. I mean, it was a fabulous series and we're gonna enjoy um, three moments from it. Um, and the first is Georgina's clip. So um, why don't we just have a quick look at it and then Georgina's gonna talk specifically about this, this particular story and how um, it was realized on screen. So if you could play the first clip, please. Um, so Georgina, we, we asked you to choose a clip from the entire series. Why did you choose that one? Um, so this clip sits in the final conservation um, episode, Our Blue Planet, and I just thought it was a really nice, um, I suppose, summary of everything that we wanted from that particular episode. Um, in particular, it was a message of hope. Um, a lot of the sequences that we featured, we re revisited characters that you'd seen in blue chip sequences throughout the series. Um, that was actually filmed specially for that episode. Um, but we didn't want that final episode to be all um, kind of a, a list of all the things that were, were bad and the issues. We wanted it also to be a message of hope. So that was a really lovely sequence that we found specially for that one episode. Um, and it also was a really nice balance that it showed community level conservation work that was happening, um, not just scientists that were working to conserve species. And it was an interesting process to find it. I think with a lot of um, research that we do nowadays, there's a lot of, um, a lot of the processes based around your computer. You look things up, you send emails. Um, but to find Len entailed a lot of telephone calls um, and to the point where we didn't even, we heard a name of Len and we didn't even have a telephone number to call him. So we ended up having to get people locally to go meet him on our behalf. Um, some of the other beaches that I looked into when we were trying to figure out where we could film this, I ended up setting up telephone calls with the conservationists on the ground via hotels that were backing onto those beaches and they'd send a message to this person and arrange a telephone call and I'd come into the office at a ridiculous hour and I'd sit and I'd be like, oh, I hope he calls me. Um, and I'd just be <laughs> sat there waiting for the phone. Um, but it was definitely an, a kind of a, a much more telephone-based um, trying to talk to people on the ground versus a just seeing what you can Google and find situation. Um, so it was a really nice way of, of finding local, local conservationists in a a great story of hope um, that also had its challenges to film. Um, what, what challenges? With it happening at night <laughs> and trying, uh, trying to film the adult females emerging on the beach at night to lay their eggs. Um, there's lots of restrictions around what lighting you can use. Basically, you can't really use anything. Um, so we took out really specialised cameras that are adapted to low light conditions and we were trying to time the shoot for when the full moon was at its peak to get the most natural lighting that we could and obviously there's always the risk that it'll be cloudy but um, you tried to kind of get all the things in, in place that would make it as successful as possible um, and I'm told by Will, my producer, who was there with Sir David that the beach was, it was almost too successful a, ne a nesting beach that it was so undulating that they were walking there in the dark and couldn't really see where they were going it was pretty treacherous um, but it, they came out with some fantastic footage. There's just one thing I wanted to pick up on was you, you saying that you had to use the telephone a lot and um, one of the wonderful you know, resources we have is obviously the internet and you can find you know, so much at just uh, the click of a button but um, you know, how important do you think are telephone skills and you know, talking to contributors and, and you know, that, that element of your job, how important is that? I think that's key. Um I think it's it's always a bit daunting to to ring someone up that you've never met, but it's really important, um, especially at a researcher level, not just for finding stories that aren't available online because a lot of things aren't. Um, Lens community group that were doing that work, they don't have a they don't have any presence online. They barely have a, t a telephone number that you can find online. So there's so many stories out there that you will never find if you just rely on internet alone. And and the best stories come from talking to people. Um, it might be just part of a general conversation you have you might be contacting them for something else and then this this thing comes off the side um so i think it's it's really key and just getting people on board and excited about your project if you can build a rapport with someone whether it's a scientist or someone locally um and make them want to to be involved in the work that you're doing you'll get so much more out of your stories so i'd, I'd say it's really important 
Great. Okay. Um, so we will take specific questions to Georgie after in a minute. We're gonna we're gonna see uh, the next clip, please, which is um, uh, which is Ted's clip, I believe. Yeah. So this is the one that Ted will talk about. So next clip, please. Um, I'm just gonna say, wow, that is, I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. I think that's my favorite clip, or one of my favorites in the whole series. I remember watching that at home, and when that you know, you get the kind of the, sh the fish leaving the water. I was just blown away. Um, so we'll talk about how the story came about and everything else, but I'm just, uh, one thing that always fascinates me about that kind of quality of camera work, how long did it take you? How long were you in the field trying to, trying to shoot that? Um, in the end, that took two separate trips of, I think it was about three and a half weeks each trip. Um, and uh, it took lots of different techniques to do it. Uh, despite the fact that we had the, the um, some of the greatest technology you can use, actually went back to really old school techniques that got it in the end, and basic field craft is the thing that does it. Okay, old school techniques, could you elaborate? So um, I started off with a thing called a Cinesflex, which is a, it's a stabilized camera that comes from missile technology, um, and I tried all sorts of other things. And then eventually the way it worked was simply standing there for long enough, learning the behavior and working with a local guy, a bit like Len in your sequence. It's often the, the local fellows often who were, would eat this thing in the first place that can give you the best information because it takes a hunter to find a hunter. And ultimately, between us, we worked out that if a bird was flying uh, consistently enough and uh, that, that I could lock onto it and follow focus for quite long periods, it put itself at threat. And if I could lock onto it, so could the fish because most of them fly so erratically. So it was just basic, old school, long lens technology, which means it actually meant long lens focusing for eight hours a day, which I was completely cross-eyed by the end of the day. But So all the technology you can throw over it gets you so far, but ultimately it's down to basic observation in the end. So, so the, sorry, just to, so the birds that weren't flying erratically, they're kind of survival of the fittest type things. The, the ones that weren't canny enough to know the danger that we're in were the ones that you could follow and the ones that the fish jumped on. Precisely. I mean, if I could get it, so could the fish, because um, they all have to work out by trial and error. Most of them are very erratic, so, uh, and they need to be in this kind of region above the surface. And if they were just not paying enough attention, they'd, um, not always, but um, so, I mean, I would miss 50 and get one. Um, still, at the end, it would still make me jump whenever it happened. I mean, it, no matter how many times you see it, you still can't quite believe it's going to happen. But, but that was, that's how we did it in the end. It was just old-fashioned field craft. And this guy standing next to me, I mean, there's another problem. Those fish, when you first see them, are black. And when they go to hunt, they go blue, so they vanish. So we tried following the fish. You can't do that. We tried... We tried so many different ends, and the only way in the end was to stand in the water and just look for birds that looked like they, that they were going to be under threat, and that's how it worked. So. Amazing. Um, just out of interest for to the audience, how many of you would like to be a wildlife camera operator like Ted? Okay, quite a few. So we'll, we'll have some specific questions about that. It's, you know, they are similar career paths to, to being editorial like Georgie and Yoli, Yoli, but kind of different too. One thing that Ted has mentioned, I think, is old-fashioned field craft. And um, how important how important do you think it is to have a kind of aptitude and understanding, an instinct really for, for animal behavior as a wildlife operator? I think um, no matter how much technology comes on and no matter how sophisticated the things we do, the basic principles of being an observer in your field are critical and you can't get away with, or you can't get away. I mean, it's the same thing that's been going on for hundreds, thousands of years. Ultimately, it's a bit like being a, a hunter, you still have to use the same techniques, you still have to observe and watch and learn the behavior, and that will never go away, despite you know any changes to the camera in your hands. And that's so, but that can be in your own back garden. There's the thing you don't have to go to exotic locations, you should be able to make the same ob observations in your back garden. And so, you can start now, you don't need to wait. So, one of the things we want to do is try to offer some kind of practical advice, and I think there's there's your first bit you know, observing animals in your back garden, doesn't matter what it is. And I, I've kind of noticed as well, working with, with different people, someone who knows British wildlife inside out, who's probably spent their childhood badger watching and things like that, you take them to Africa and they're filming lions or hyenas, they, it's the same kind of skills. They just get into that mode of observing and, and trying to anticipate behavior because that's what you did with that. You had to anticipate which fish would come out and get the bird. Um, so that kind of field craft and knowledge and, and time in the field is... Um, is uh, kind of invaluable, I think. As and I think key is, is what Ted was saying too. The technology is changing all the time, and 
Ted was using the high-end, the Cineflex, these stabilized cameras that, that could be in a helicopter on the back of a truck or a boat or whatever, really state-of-the-art technology. But it, you can have all the best cameras in the world if you don't, if you can't anticipate what the animal's gonna do and which fish is gonna jump and when, you're never gonna get the shot. So, so for those of you that wanna be an operator, just get out in the field, I think is the, the advice. And you can make a start with um, just a stills camera, there's a thing, so, uh, or even if you don't have a stills camera, a storyboard, the point is to, is to think about it. That's, to be able to create a beautiful image is in a way the easy bit. The hardest bit is, is understanding what's in front of you so that you can predict it, so you can prepare yourself. Camera work really is ultimately about preparation. Firstly, starting with these two. If, if it wasn't for people like these two, we'd be lost. But then it's just standing there, shutting everything out of your mind, and learning what's going on in front of you. In most of our day-to-day -day life, we're staring you know, at our feet, or we've got to get to a meeting. We don't pay attention. You've got to bring yourself back in and say, right, understand what's in front of me. Don't make assumptions, learn it, see it. That's, that's the first part of the job. Thank you. Um, and the final clip, um, which Yoli will talk to, is another highlight, I think, from the, the series. Uh, so the question is, how, d how do you find one fish that does that? So, um, is, can everyone hear that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I basically, I studied um, marine biology um, in Australia um, at James Cook University. And I actually did my master's degree and I was looking very much at um, cognition um, with coral reef fish. And so I actually knew a little bit about these fish that use tools. Um, and so, and I always thought that it would be something that would be really, really amazing for people to be able to, to see and something that, you know, would be wonderful for people to, to watch um, for Blue Planet 2. But the challenge that we really found was that, you know, People had seen this behavior, but it was very, very much an opportunistic thing. So people had, there's, there's basically two papers that are out where these tusk fish were using tools, but there was nowhere where we, we could actually, you know, go and film, film that behavior. And so I talked to some of the um, researchers who had worked on, on tusk fish, and they said, actually, what you really need to be doing is you need to be setting up cameras like all across the Great Barrier Reef and trying to basically set up cameras where, um, where, where these tusk fish might be using tools. And I remember I talked to the, my producers and they were like, yeah, I mean, that would be great, but that's going to take such a long time to actually you know, do all of that research. And so it was actually put on the back burner. And in the end, it, we were almost not going to be able to film this behavior. Um, and in the end, um, I actually had a friend who was working uh, at Lizard Island Research Station, and he was working on um, the cooperative hunting with uh, octopus and groupers. And I don't know if you remember that, but that was in the reef um, program. And uh, so he was there. And I just remember thinking, actually, you know what? Why don't you just, if, if you've got the time, would you mind just following these tusk fish around and just, just see whether they might be actually, you know, see what they're doing, see whether they might be going off and using tools. And turns out that after three days of following this tusk fish around, we found that this particular tusk fish was going all the time to this one particular coral and it was picking up clams, it was going to these, these bits of the coral and, you know, cracking them open and it was just, it was totally amazing. And um, what I found also so surprising about that was that I had um, done a lot of research at this particular reef um, at Lizard Island Research Station, and I had never once seen this behavior. Um, and it's also a place where there's lots and lots and lots of researchers that are there that have been working on other topics. They also never seen this behavior. So it's sort of really interesting that actually you know, coral reefs are incredibly complex places. There's lots and lots of different species there. And actually, if you're not like really focusing on a particular animal or particular species, um, you know, you can, it can go completely unnoticed. And it goes to show that I think there's a lot of different creatures out there that um, are doing also other amazing behaviors that we just don't know about. So, yeah. Um, so something we're going to talk a, bit, a lot about, I think, is persistence, that it's this, you know, wildlife filmmaking is a competitive industry and you've got to kind of just stick at it and, and be persistent. But, but I think once, even once you're through and, and working on something like Blue Planet 2, you've got to be persistent too. So if you'd have given up on that story, it would never have been on our screens. And, and that was in show one, wasn't it? It was a, 
I mean, I remember coming into work the next day and everyone talking about that tusk fish and did you see it and how amazing it was. And so, you know, why did, why did you just keep going with it? What, you know, you kind of, you could have given up at any stage. Why didn't you? Uh, I think I, I always recognized that it would just be um, an incredible story. And I think that, you know, most people think of fishers as, you know, they, they think that they um, are really pretty animals to go and snorkel with. Um, or they're, you know, an animal that's actually really quite tasty and nice to eat. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize that actually, you know, they have different personalities, they have character, um, they're capable of all these amazing, I mean, groupers, for instance, cooperate with completely different species. Um, and then you've got these tusk fish that are using tools. And it's just, I, I think it's something that, you know, makes, I guess, I hope um, people recognize um, sort of an, a, a new side of these kind of amazing um, fishes and I guess respect them um, for, for being actually quite intelligent creatures. Um, and so I think it was that that really made me want to push this story and, um, and yeah, make sure that we tried to film it. Great, well, well done. And I think the passion, you can see Yoli's passion for, for the subject matter. And I love the fact that you wanted to do it for the fish. It was one up for the kind of fish's rights and, and you know, and showing them in a different light. And it really did. Um, so this is your opportunity. We're going to talk in a bit about these guys' careers and how they got into wildlife filmmaking and, and try and get some advice for you too. But um, before we do that, if you, I'm sure you must have some questions to these guys about these clips, but also about the series in general, how, you know, how, how it was made um, behind the scenes, that kind of thing. So um, we've got about 10 minutes to, for some questions, if you have any. If, put up your hand if you would like to ask them something. Don't be shy. Um, and can I, what, while the mics, could you also just tell us a little bit about yourself and what, what you, you know, where you are, are you a student, what do you, what do you want to okay. do? Um, so I'm Jamie, um, and I'm here with Rosie, who, um, we're both at JMEC, um, Cardiff University School of Journalism, and we're doing an MA in international journalism, but we're like doing a documentary pathway rather than like broadcast or um, something different. So yeah, um, and I was just wondering, it's probably more for the camera side of it, to get the images is like beautiful, but then the sound is something that I'm a bit baffled how you got great sound quality as well as great pictures. Was that like difficult to do? Ah, okay. Um, I, this is something I don't know a huge amount about, I'm afraid, because I'm concentrating on images, but we've used specialist sound recorders. You probably know more about this than me, actually. But um. Yeah, so I mean, we were kind of, we worked really, really hard um, for the vast, the majority of the episodes, especially for the Coral Reef episode, um, to be working with scientists and also to working with people in production to actually use, you know, hydrophones to be capturing um, all of these amazing um, sounds that you hear on the reef. So, for instance, the Dawn Chorus, um, we, we worked with um, amazing scientists, Steve Simpson, and, um, yeah, to capture these sounds. And we also, for our um, Big Blue episode, for instance, we worked, um, we, we attached uh, cameras to uh, things like sperm whales, which ended up having the ability to actually record sound. So we were able to actually hear as these animals were, you know, diving into the depths and being able to hear as they um, echolocate and look for, for um, prey. So, yeah, we definitely worked very hard to try to get as much natural sound as possible. I'm going to let you into a secret too. And this is not a big kind of secret, so you don't have to tell the Daily Mail. But a lot of, um, a lot of the sound on TED sequence anyway, because it was shot off speed. You can't record sound at the same time. And so when, when you get to the final stages of a, of a film, um, you go into a dubbing suite and they have what are called spot effects. And you'll be familiar with them from drama and things like that. And, and they have these fantastic trays of water. And I mean, the one, the, the really famous one, that if you see a polar bear walking across the snow, you, your cameraman, your sound recorder is not going to be close enough to get the footfall. If he is, you know, he might become dinner or lunch or whatever. Those. So what they do is they put custard powder into a washing up glove and they, and that makes the sound of the. So there's a, there's very very clever, really really talented sound designers. You know, I made a, a film with um, D a red deer, 
you know, rutting and clashing, and they they have antlers in the thing that they do it because it's very very hard to get close enough to get. Would you agree? It's kind of it's it's part of the process really at the, at the spot effects and the water splashes and things like that would have been done in Bristol um, rather than on location. You can say the other thing is you can use things like parabolics, uh, but that doesn't work underwater because, as you know, sound underwater is omni. And uh, I've tried lots of experiments with, with building parabolics underwater, and it's just a complete nightmare. So there are some things that physics defy. <laughs> um, I mean, that's another thing as well. That, I mean, many of you probably don't know that there's there's a, the, you know a huge um, part of wildlife filmmaking and filmmaking in general is the sound and sound design and sound engineering, sound recording. There's so many different careers that that you can embark on in in TV. It's not just cameras or directing. Um, anyone else got another question? Um, and again, just if you wouldn't mind telling us who you are and where you, what you're up to. I'm Nikki. I'm gonna. Like, I'm looking towards like directing and producing. But I was just wondering, um, what's the best way of getting into like filming like wildlife and stuff? Like, is there an easier route to take, or do you, do you just submit stuff to random people of like things that you've taken? Or we'll we'll talk specifically about how these guys got in. But maybe Georgie, you could. What, is there a succinct answer to that? It's um, I suppose there's no one key answer. I think if there was, everyone would be doing it. Um, me and Yoli were talking on the way up here about our personal journeys into TV. And while there's lots of similarities, we found um, everyone has their own journey to take. Um, I think, as James said, perseverance is really important. Um, my first attempts to get to work in TV were not successful. Um, but I kept trying and I kept um, just going back and building uh, building skills in myself that I could imagine being useful for TV production. And at the end of the day, if it's a passion of yours, you can just keep pursuing it um, and just build up the experience that's, that's going to be relevant um, and, and just make, make contacts. I didn't have any um, prior contacts in TV when I started, so a big part of my personal effort was to, to meet people. Um, and I think that goes a long way. Okay. Um, as I say, we'll talk a lot more in a minute about pathways into to, um, the job. I mean, my, in my experience, if you meet a thousand different wildlife filmmakers, there's a thousand different ways that they've they've got in. There are no, there are certain things that we'll talk about, but I think there's a th you know a myriad of different ways in. Any more questions about the series itself? Yeah, easy next door. Hi, I'm Becky. I've um, actually just finished my marine biology degree, so I am really interested in getting involved in this as well. I was just wondering whether, because um, there's a lot of conservation issues in Blue Planet 2, whether that's the way forward for wildlife filmmaking, as it has made a massive impact on around the UK with plastic pollution. People are more concerned about using straws and things like that. So whether it's the way forward for filming wildlife in that aspect. Uh, Yoli. Um, yeah, so I mean, when we started to make Blue Planet, um, we, you know, we never really intended to make, um, you know, a program which was focusing on conservation. I mean, we're very much a, you know, public broadcaster, and our and our goal is really was to highlight the amazing, you know, discoveries that have been found in the underwater world um, since Blue Planet came out. So we wanted to show these incredible mysteries and the sophistication of all these incredible creatures. Um, and I think what we found when we were actually filming was that, you know, there were these issues which we just could not ignore. So we came across things like for the coral reef episode, we uh, filmed, we, we were in the field when um, the Great Barrier Reef experienced one of the greatest coral bleaching events. And so we, we just couldn't not tell that story um, and also for instance plastics um, we saw plastic on pretty much all of the shoots that we went on so we found that we we just simply could not ignore that um, and you know we wanted to make a contemporary film um, films in Blue Planet as well so that's sort of how that happened um, but yeah I think for the future it will be the same our, our primary role is to you know, show um, behavior and traditional natural history, but certainly we also, we want to make sure that we show these issues as well, um, so, yeah. 
Um, I, I was, I mean, I'm glad you raised the idea of plat this, this was from last week, but there's been even more. I mean, this is just one of the front pages that, um, about plastic specifically, but we were talking about this earlier, you know, plastic's been an issue, everyone's known about it, but something happened in Blue Planet too. And I don't think, it, well, in fact, I know it didn't happen in the, in the seventh film, which was the kind of conservation one. It happened after the fourth film, wasn't it? Or the, the open water one. When everyone started talking about, I think Theresa May raised it the next week in Parliament, and it, it really just seemed to push that issue over the edge in, in the public consciousness. And, and I think, you know, I'm sure you must be very proud of it, but, but as, you know, we're all concerned about the environment, it was brilliant to see some, you know, the BBC doing something like that. Um, I know that off the back of that, you know, there was a perception amongst channels and, and commissioners and things that, that environment didn't sell. I think Blue Planet 2, I mean, I think that episode got 12 million or something, and it kind of showed that people weren't put off by it. So, and I know they've commissioned, Liz Bonin's doing a thing on plastics, and they've commissioned a whole lot of environmental stuff. Channel 4 recently said they really wanted to do something on the environment. So I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that in the next few years we'll, s we'll see a few more things coming through. Whether it will be, I don't think it's the new way of doing it, really. I think, as Yoli says, there'll always be the market for the big, beautiful, celebratory stuff. But, but let's hope there's a bit more environment and context in there, too. Can I just add to that? I mean, it, it, it's worth put, I mean, it's to just reiterate that for f aspiring filmmakers, it's tremendous because there is a big debate out there, but it's not necessarily the BBC's job to make those arguments. It's an apolitical organisation, and first you have to get people to commit to it emotionally, which is what this job does. But if you're all planning to be filmmakers, there's a lot of other outlets, there's a lot of scope for what you can do. So it would be, it'd be a shame to think that you should have to limit yourself just to one type of product. You know, you can, there's a lot on the internet now, there's feature films that do it. There's, there's a tremendous, it's a tremendous time to be a journalist, that's, uh, I would say at the moment. But that doesn't have to be done necessarily here. Um, one last question before we talk to the panelists, if anyone's, come on. At the, up there, and then we'll, there will be more opportunity for questions later, but we'll that'll be the last one for now. Hi, um, I'm Amy. Um, I've recently started working as a researcher in kind of documentary and factual. Um, I found it really interesting what you were saying about um, initially finding those stories about like making phone calls and stuff like across, you know, other side of the world. Um, what kind of other kind of tips did you have of finding those initial stories when you know you might not necessarily have any point of contact in these places that you're looking to kind of shoot a film? Georgie? Um, yeah, so I I found, um, I started a lot of my research with getting kind of a lay of the land, as it were, finding those people that kind of have a big general overview of areas and getting some good advice from them. Um, and then often off the back of those conversations, it would be a case of saying, you know, ideally we'd love to film this something i've totally made up but wouldn't it be great if that actually happened um and then you kind of get a bit more insight from people um i mean that the, the internet is an incredible thing there's lots of stuff that you can find on there if you're if you're clever about how you search for it um and it's just about not being afraid to kind of make a phone call and talk to someone in person and have an idea of what your what your kind of you know, your blue sky ideal would be, um, it's nice to go and chat to people about kind of a specific thing rather than saying, can you just tell me whatever happens? Because you'll just get an onslaught of information, not be able to process it. So it's always good to collaboratively talk with your team, um, figure out what it is that you're trying to go for, what is your 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 ideal scenario that you're trying to film. Um, and then just using your contacts. It's, um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. You kind of build up a contact system at the more experience you get but it's it's really key to start thinking about it early on I think having these people you can go to for some advice um, and having those key people and, and knowing which organizations work in what area great thank you um, there will be more questions but um, what I wanted to do now is I'm just gonna kind of interview don't worry about it um, <laughs> the three panelists and find out a little bit about their careers and and I think you'll uh, you'll learn you know that uh, everyone's got a different kind of routine but Yoli this was your first job in television um yeah you're yeah yeah so i um i it's really um fairly amazing actually i think to kind of get in as a researcher on blue planet 2 as the first job um but i i mean for me i guess i um am quite i think the reason for being employed on this program is largely because of my marine biology experience my background um, working in um, uh, in and around the ocean um, so um, 
just so just you. just to interrupt quickly. So what did you? So you studied? Did you do a masters? How far did you go with your education? Yeah. So I um I actually grew up um, since I was eight years old um in North Queensland in Australia, and um I was um, basically working um on working in the diving industry. I was often um, diving and working as a scuba diver. Um, and then I went um, to James Cook University and I studied a actually a double degree in um, environmental law and marine biology. I always wanted to try to do something to protect the environment and to protect the ocean. Um, I had absolutely no idea at that point that filmmaking was even an option. Um, I knew nobody that was doing filmmaking. I was always quite interested in photography and I had worked as, a, um, as an underwater photographer um, in the diving industry for a little bit. But in terms of actually becoming a researcher for TV, I, I had no idea about that. So I, I ended up finishing, spent five years um, doing my undergraduate degree and then following that I decided to do a master's in marine biology and I specifically was looking at how coral reef fish learn about their environment. So I was learning about how um, fish, basically fish intelligence and cognition, which is how I ended up kind of coming up with some of these stories um, for Blue Planet 2. Let me just stop you there for a sec. We'll, get, we'll carry on with Yoli's career. But um, so how important do you think education, I mean, university education, bachelor's, master's degree is, you know, and not just about for yourself, but, but your colleagues, in the industry how important is it to get that kind of qualification yeah so i mean it i think it depends on what program you're working on but certainly for blue planet 2 and for some of the bigger landmark programs at the bbc which are very much about natural history and animal behavior i found it to be incredibly important to have that background in zoology or biology and the reason why is because um, my job as a researcher is basically to spend a large amount of time on the phone to scientists. Um, and whilst you know your job is to find these extraordinary stories about natural history, the first job is to speak to these scientists and actually talk to them in scientific language. They may not necessarily know what actually makes an entertaining story. So you kind of, it's your job to speak to them on their level about the science side of things and then convert that into a something that's going to work more for, for filming. So that, for me, that's I found that to be incredibly important. I do know some people that actually don't have a biology degree, but they're very, there's only a few people that I know that, um, yeah, don't have that degree. So I would say that's something that is, is very useful if you want to work on um, something like Blue Planet 2 or Planet Earth. Which, which are kind of this, you know, it's a specific strand of natural history filmmaking, but, but as Yoli says, it's very, very useful. Um, so, I, so I'm just going to kind of short, shortcut your career a little bit. So Yoli's obviously got very qualified, did a master's, years underwater. You'd have thought absolutely perfect, the kind of person the BBC was looking for. So Yoli, when you applied to the BBC for work experience, this is unpaid, two weeks work experience, how successful were you? Not successful at all. <laughs> so I'm not sure whether it was because I was quite, um, my background in science is very specific. You know, I was very much into marine biology. Um, but yeah, I applied for the work experience twice and I didn't um, get in both times. It's incredibly competitive um, to be able to get that job. So similarly to Georgie, I mean, I really worked quite hard to try to meet as many people as I possibly could. I was always watching natural history programs and I was trying my best to sort of see if I could critique those programs, see what, you know, I really liked about the programs, what I didn't. And I spent a lot of time talking to producers and trying to, just trying to hopefully, hopefully get on their radar in some way. Um, and, you know, I, I almost actually, I spent about a year sort of trying to get into the industry. And I finally, I was almost about to give up on it, actually. Um, but I, um, as a final, before I went back to Australia, I decided to go to the Jackson Hole Film Festival, which is a place where it's sort of like the Oscars, I guess, for natural history filmmaking. Um, and I was lucky enough to meet um, James Honeybourne, who was at the time, he was nominated for Africa. Um, and he was at that time needing to find a development researcher to be able to just spend a couple of months finding new stories to be able to get Blue Planet to 
uh, commissioned. And so he talked to me and he said, listen, you just, you know, I, I was quite persistent. I spoke to him a lot. I put my CV in front of him at the Jackson Hole Film Festival. And finally, he was like, okay, I'll give you a go. So I had two months um, to, yeah, try to find as many stories as I could. And then after that, I ended up um, applying. They advertised the researcher position. And, um, yeah, and I ended up getting the position formally. So that the word again, persistence, you know, almost gave up. And someone is brilliantly qualified as Jolly and, you know, um, and I, I think there there is also a bit of serendipity there, isn't it? That James Honeyborn, the exec, ultimately the exec for Blue Planet 2, at that time was looking for someone with marine expertise and met Yoli, you know, but you have to, and you put yourself in the right place, the film festival and, and you, you know, stalked him, <laughs> for want of a better word, for a <laughs> but so didn't give up on it. Great. Okay. So, um, Ted. So, Ted, it's very much on the, the kind of practical side, the camera operator. Um, and, Ted, I had a look through your CV. Uh, interestingly, your first degree was in fine art. How, how did you end up doing that and how did you, how did you end up in, as a wildlife camera operator? Um, I, I wanted to do what I'm doing now since I was about that big. Um, but things didn't work out the way I expected at school. So I ended up at art school when I was um, 18, 19 or whatever. But it w really wasn't what I was trying to do. But I was just very interested in visual imagery. Um, and then I did a postgrad in photojournalism and ended up working in Fleet Street. And uh, uh, what happened was I was working for the FT and we did an interview with David Attenborough and he was talking about people not following their, their dreams and being frightened of the sciences, um, which is kind of what had happened to me. So I spoke to him at the end of it and said, okay, so I've got the wrong degree. Um, I'm a professional photographer, but what do you say if I want to do this and I've wanted to do this all my life? He said, you have no choice, go back to school. So I quit that minute, walked out of the room, phoned my boss, said I'm not coming back, and a week later I was back at university and I studied aquatic biology and I self-funded for four years to do it. Sometimes you have to just act on a thing, a bit like you, you, just, you know you've just got to be persistent. Sometimes I, didn't, I knew I, wasn't, I didn't know how to pay for it, I didn't know what, how I was going to do it, but it was the best advice I've ever been given. And I had to act on it at that moment. And if I'd stopped to think about how I was going to do it, I would never have done it. But years later, um, having finished, I went to Bristol and I started as a camera assistant. This is tw over 20 years ago, so we were still using film then. They had camera assistants. It doesn't really happen now. But um, I spoke to him about it while we were making Blue Planet, which was quite funny. And he was quite embarrassed and said, oh, dear, did I say that to you? Um, that was a bit of hard advice. But I think, I think again, it's about persistence. Or just, you've just got to be prepared to take a chance to follow what you really want. If you're not... If you're not really committed, there are so many people like Yoli who are committed that you'll get pushed out of the way. There's the thing. So if David, if David Attenborough told you to do I think most people would follow his advice, wouldn't they? So, but a bit of serendipity again, you know, that if you hadn't have met David and he hadn't have been so forceful or whatever, I mean, do you think you'd have got there in the end or was it was at that moment that, that really made you think? Um, I suppose it, it just spurred me on because you can lose your dreams. I mean, I, I don't know what it's like, but many of you have finished university. I, I didn't go the right way to start with. And I'd started to pretend I didn't want it in the first place. And so he just shook me and said, wake up. And, uh, and that was a tremendous thing. So some, I think often it does take a moment that makes you realize that there is no way around this one. You're going to have to do it. Um, but I, I, go, I agree with Yoli that the biology, even at the camera level, to me, I mean, we've talked about this earlier, you may not agree, it's changed, it's changed a lot now because there's so much difference in technology. And, and um, But I think that the biology, for me, I'm so glad I did it. I could have easily said, oh, it's just about visual technique. To me, the biology is irreplaceable um, because you need to understand what you're, what's going on. You need, to, you need to understand first principle. Um, so that's my personal opinion. It may not be everybody's opinion, but it is for me. And so what, are there any other kind of bits of advice you could offer people who want to become an operator, as opposed to the, you know, the producers or researchers? Yeah, for the, the other thing is um, you've got to be very flexible, and uh, having a technical knowledge is very important, because technology is changing so... F I mean, you know this anyway, in, in all forms of life. So when I... I, I remember Planet Earth 1, I designed the cable dolly that did the giant redwoods and the guano piles and stuff. That was using O-level physics with bicycle wheels and lead around the rims to keep that, that thing still. Now... The accelerometers in your phone are like that, and they do the job better. That's only in the space, well, when was planet Earth one? I mean, 16 years ago or something like that. 2006, wasn't 2006. it? I mean, that's astonishing. That's in my, and I, as I say, I started on film. I work with people now that didn't even use tape. 
and I find that quite weird now it's all solid state, being flexible, being technically aware, and being prepared to experiment is the other thing. We still need the same kind of determination that these guys do because you'll get pushed off a lot. There's a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of people with great cameras now that can do things and they think, you know, so you'll find that it's a huge number of people you're running with. You've got to be able to say, right, so for example, a camera person needs to be able to go anywhere and do anything. So be aware of all your technology. And then I thought, well, I need to be able to climb. How do I do that? Oh, so I went and did industrial rope access when I wasn't working because um, it got me a ticket that you can use in film. If you've done marine biology, somebody mentioned that here, um, get your commercial dive ticket. You know, there's a Doug Anderson who you've probably heard of, very famous underwater cameraman, was a scallop diver. Get as much, even when you're not working, don't, you're not wasting time to think, right, what do I need to know? I need to know more about cameras. I need to know about climbing. I need to know about lots of techniques that will all come in. Boat, using a boat properly, survival at sea, anything you can get your hands on, it's all useful. We're kind of polymaths, I think. So, Great. Okay, well, um, questions in, in a minute to, to both Yoli and Ted. But before we do that, we're going to talk to Georgie about your route into the industry. Um, so uh, I've, I've looked through your CV too. Um, so you did university as well. What? Yeah, talk to me about your kind of education first. Yeah, so I did a three-year degree in zoology. I always, my initial plan was to be a zookeeper and then someone told me that was very, very difficult to do. Um, so I studied zoology at university knowing that I was really interested in, in wildlife, um, physiology, behaviour. And then I came out of university and... Hello. Um, I came out of university and um, I had actually been lucky enough that in my final year I did get onto a BBC work experience placement. Um, I applied just online. It was just a very generic application. I just had to type in the stuff that I was studying. And I think at that particular time they were trying to do some research on a series which kind of overlapped with some of the modules I was, I was um, studying at university. So I spent uh, a month in London um, working with a team. So that kind of gave me my first taste of filmmaking and the thought that I could do research in a TV production setting. Um, and I came out of university and I, you know, on my merry way applied for lots of jobs um, and didn't get any of them. And so I set about and I, I volunteered at the Wild Screen Film Festival, which is a week long um, event that's kind of the complimentary um, festival to Jackson Hole, which Yoli, Yoli attended. Um, and that was a great opportunity to meet people. And even if I didn't meet them in person, see them talking, figure out who, who was working on what, what production companies were around. Um, and then I just, I sent my CV out um, and it was, it was off the back of one meeting that I had. It was just a face-to-face -face meeting, a quick chat opportunity for me to tell this company a bit about myself. Um, didn't hit anything back for, for probably three to six months. And then I was kind of going down a different career path. I'd started going into graphic design. Um, and then I got a call from the company saying, do you want, uh, we have a runner position, do you want to come along? Um, so I leapt at it, leapt at the opportunity. Um, and I spent a couple of months working as a runner for them before I got offered my first researcher job. Um, so mine wasn't a direct direct route into research. Um, I went via runner, I went for a different industry first, um, and then slowly I've been kind of building up um, the productions I've worked on. So Blue Planet wasn't my first TV researcher job. Um, I ended up doing a lot of more people-focused work, people and wildlife, um, but that stood me in really good stead to kind of work on the final episode. So um, while I had my zoology degree, I also then kind of built up an experience base with people and they call it sync kind of filming, where you do a lot of, 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 of people um, and wildlife. So that's kind of my route. So there's some interesting things in there. Um, first, firstly, I think that you, you've got so many knockbacks that you decided to go on a different path. So what's PR and graphic design? You just thought, you know, obviously um, wildlife filmmaking is not for me. Did you kind of feel like you were giving up on your dream when you took that, that graphic design job? Yeah, in a way. I. I always wanted to do something with communication, whether, you know, TV production would have been my dream job. Um, but if it wasn't going to work out, I wasn't going to stop that from letting me still do something that I enjoyed. Um, so the graphic design job that I took in the PR it was with, um, you worked for conservation organisations. Um, and so it was a great opportunity for me to kind of still keep, keep doing it in some sense. But um, even when I started going down that track, I, I kept 
kept updating my CV and sending it over. And I think it's something that I've learned now from being on the other side that um, you might find it really awkward to keep sending your CV over if you've not had response to it. Um, but it's but honestly, it's the best thing that you can do. Just keep trying and just keep keep contacting people and try and get face to face meetings with them. Because just off the back of that one meeting where it wasn't even with a job in mind it was just they said oh you've sent your CV over quite a few times do you want to come in and, and just um, meet one of the operations team and it was off the back of that chat where I was able to just kind of say why I wanted to work on them um, work at that company that I eventually did get a job with them great that, I mean it's the word that's going to keep coming up persistence you know you've got to keep going and, and following you know, if, you, if you're passionately committed to, to this kind of career then you just need to keep going at it and you'll get a lucky break um, so questions for our panelists who about getting into the industry or, or just in general. We've got about 10, 15 minutes for general questions. Um, yes. Yeah, if you could just tell us again who you are and, and you know what you're up to. Yeah, okay. Hi, my name is Matt uh, and I'm working with my partner in uh, Bristol where we have a production company, so not far from uh, BBC, who also uh, help facilitate the, the project. Uh, I just first of all wanted to thank you for this incredible series. I think that is, for, m for me, it's been one of the most amazing TV experience this year and I've learned things about the world I live in that I didn't know and both the technique behind it, the artistry, but also the narrative, the, the drama uh, that takes place on the sea or above it, uh, was extremely compelling, inspiring, and uh, so thank you for that. That's, that's a wonderful piece of work and something to be really proud of. Um, my question will be uh, more on the production um, side, to know where you started with that project. If you had a specific agenda as to what story you wanted to tell, where you wanted to go with the entire series, or if uh, those episodes came along with what you could shoot eventually over the uh, four years of the making. Um, Yoli, I think you were there at the start, weren't you? So what was, what was your brief in that first piece of initial research you did four or five years ago, was it? Yeah, it's, yeah I think it's almost five years ago now. Wow. Um, yeah, no, I think that um, when, when I was working to try to get this program commissioned to begin with, um, you know, it's been... Uh, I think it's been 20 years since they first started on the initial Blue Planet. So there was this feeling, and, and, and in the last like five years, or a little bit more than that actually, they, they did the census of marine life, which was this amazing study where they kind of went all around the world and they discovered huge numbers of different um, things about the marine environment. And so the idea was really to make this program about newness and what these new amazing discoveries about the ocean was. So for me, it was very much about f um, connecting with scientists and to work out the new research that they were doing. Um, and ultimately, to try to find amazing behavioral stories that could connect the audience with the ocean. Um, and we, I think, tried very hard to find these sorts of stories which build character, personality, um, show how connected different individuals, different marine life is with other marine life in the ocean, and ultimately how they are connected also with us, and how important the ocean actually is for you know driving our weather, our climate, and you know for producing the oxygen we breathe. So it was really the idea was to show newness, show the, re the new research, and also connectivity. I think with us. Um. Hi, um, my name is Pippa. Um, I'm a junior camera assistant uh, for BBC's Casualty at the minute. Um, and ideally, wildlife is the direction I want to go, although drama is quite good too. Um, but <laughs> this is more for TED. And so I'm experienced more in the, as I say, drama field, which is different working camera ranks. Um, and I was advised to maybe go research away. So for a little bit, went researcher in like documentary, um, like you have an art background, um, and no zoology or biology degree. And because camera assistants aren't really used in the field much, they normally get a researcher to you know go on the field as well and help out with camera. 
how would you advise breaking into getting sort of cam op way? <laughs> I think you could say that the new camera assistant is now the DIT, so you look after media. But uh, hold on, DIT is digital uh, ingest technician or something? Something yeah. like that. Basically, you look after the media because the media is getting now ridiculous. Our ratios are high. We're shooting, well, we were shooting five and a half K most of the time on seven to one. I mean, you'll know all about this in your job currently. The media is just is catastrophic, and HDR and blah blah blah, and off speed. Um, so the, the old camera assistant is now that. But I do, um, it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts about this. I've often given advice to people, particularly if you really want to get involved in these sort of landmark projects, is to become more um, broad skilled. So um, become a researcher and an AP as a shooter um, and make sure that you cover that. I mean, when we started, we were in film. You could really only be one thing. I think now it's becoming more and more important that you are able to, to do many things in the field. You need to be able to, for example, cut and shunt and edit quickly in the field. You need to be able to mend things. You need to be able to understand a story. You know grammar. Um, you know about cameras to the, to you know, I mean, your background will be very useful because you'll understand all the same things like shutter angle and stuff like that. But if you could get more experience in like grammar and storytelling and I, mean, I don't know how you feel about this because you're you because you take people on, you hire people. Yeah, I think I think we're kind of I suppose we're talking about entry level jobs and and you probably need to be prepared. I think anyone who wants to get anything to, to take the basic job, um, a runner, you know, is the ent entry level kind of editorial thing. And we were discussing this as well. When you go and join a company, a runner probably means being like a PA. You make tea and what I do menial kind of things, but you might get a little bit of research. Um, you know, thrown your way and when you do, you grab it with both hands. That's an editorial thing. I think for camera work, generally the people that I know have progressed have been, as I say, a DIT, the person in the field. Everyone needs one, you know, looking after the drives. So you've got to be technically adept. Being able, you know, being camera literate and being able to look after the kit. Often the DITs, you know, if they say, I'll look after the kit and everything, that's great too because then they can clean lenses and, you know, again, that's probably something you know a lot about. Um, and, you know, then... Maybe after, maybe on your first job, who knows when you get the lucky break, someone might be ill, you know, something might happen, you might get a chance to go and operate. And then if you, if you make a good stab of that, then, you know, you've got something for your show reel. I did a thing in Zambia where the DIT ended up shooting a key sequence with a lion, and that was his kind of first big break. So, I don't know, that's, that's one entry level position, and that's, you know, you can apply to the big companies in Bristol, you'll know them, Silverback and Icon, we've been mentioned and try and get in that way, but um, you know, it sounds like you've got a lot of skills that you can you can offer. There, there are occasionally bursaries as well. Um, Silverback have just taken on a new one. The BBC take them on. That's a it's it's that's more like hen's teeth. They they do come up now and again, so you can do it that way. But um, but find out what's going on and just try and um, as as Yuli was doing as a researcher, just get yourself attached to it in any way possible. So. Uh, don't be afraid of saying, okay, it's not the job I thought I was going to do, it's DIT or it's research, or whatever it happens to be. Push it, because you've just got to expose yourself That's to it, you know, that's the thing. Yeah, I was just going to mention that um, we had a, I think he was a production, his technical name was a, a production coordinator, um, who was on our programme, and he, because of his skills in, in um, I mean, he's not hugely experienced with camera kit, but he became a lot more experienced. And he's, his job was basically not to go so much in the field, but he looked after all of our kit. So in terms of when we went out on shoots, um, managing which equipment needed to go out, and then when it came back, making sure that it was sent off to the right places to be fixed, make sure that it was all like know in a, in a good state to be able to send off on the next shoot and he was in charge of buying kit making sure and so through that I think he's now become somebody that actually is used a lot more in sort of like drone yeah this is Jack yeah so yeah in 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 flying you know drones and he's becoming more and more actually kind of used for filmmaking so yeah that's another job. just to say this might be slightly surprising in the particular case of this guy Jack he wasn't particularly experienced. Um, he's now doing very well. It's something that's never really talked about. One of the reasons why he was so became so invaluable, he was just such a great guy in the field. Um, often you're living in extremely close proximity, in very crude conditions, 
cheek by jowl with people, and if if they're abrasive, it's I mean, it sounds odd, this, but you do need to be able to just be able to get on with people, get on with what's in front of you, and sometimes that's more important in a way than having huge amounts of experience. Do you see what I mean? It's that, it sounds really odd. People never really discuss it, but if you're in some of the places we go, like a small boat, goodness me, they can be very small. <laughs> um, so, as I said earlier, there are some kind of concrete things that we want to try and kind of give you concrete advice. I think a few things have come up then which I'll just kind of list really. So the DIT role is an entry level thing, being technically proficient, you know, good with drives and edit the software uh, that you need to, to kind of, you know, or organize the media. Um, camera op bursaries, there's one at Silverback, there's one at BBC, you know, that you can apply for those. Um, there are also, ca I know people who got camera assistants, so if they're quite, you know, successful wildlife camera operators. Um, Often take on assistants who help them in the field, and so you can, you know, you can apply directly to them. Charlie Hamilton James, for example, took on Hector. Um, I can never pronounce his surname, but anyway, it's something like that. But Hector helped him in the field, and now Hector's a very successful camera operator in his own right. So, you know, just try all sorts of different avenues, you know, and and you'll get there. Um, the one thing I was going to add to that as well is that when people come along to me, particular operators, even if they're junior at your level or whatever, I say, "Where's your showreel?" And I think these days with, with technology as it is, you know, put together a showreel or shoot a film with digital technology now. Everyone can edit it. You can you could shoot something on your phone. I know that sounds ridiculous, but you can at least gather some images. You know, there's no point turning up saying, well, I haven't had the opportunity because I think these days everybody can get hold of a camera and, and give it a go. So that becomes your calling card. I think either if you want a, a camera op or a researcher role, you know, showing an a, a kind of passion for filmmaking, I think, is key. Um, we've only got a few more minutes. One, yeah, one last question, please. Yeah. Hi, yeah, my name's Rosie, and I'm currently a runner on Casualty with Pip. Um, I just want to uh, a question for you, really, is uh, how did you find the transition from being a runner to researcher? Is there anything that you did to kind of prepare yourself for that, or habits you kind of got into whilst you were running to kind of prep for it? Yeah, definitely. Well, um, as James mentioned, the runner role that I did was a lot of tea making. Um, learnt how to make cafetiers. Um, so you're often doing jobs that, you know, isn't, isn't your dream job. Um, and I spent a lot of my time doing that job really well just to prove that I was, more often than anything, they just, you want to prove that you're someone they can rely on that does a good job, is a great team player, um, so do focus on the job really seriously, but I also spent a lot of my time, um, the company I was at also do things like the one show, so I sent over ideas for them, um, just showing your willingness to be involved in things. Um, they had shoots on weekends and I'd put my hand up and say, I'll happily go along and, and help you guys with any logistics. Um, but to kind of get ready for the researcher role that I wanted to do, it was just showing that you can you can find stories for them. I think there's, whatever genre you want to go into, but it's wildlife kind of having a little think about stories and pitching them um, to whoever you're working with or, or getting yourself in that position that if a researcher job did come up, you'd be the best candidate for it. Um, not only because you're working in that company maybe, but because you've provided them with the idea. Um, so it's just kind of using that opportunity. You've got your, do the door is kind of there um, and showing that you can do the next job. Um, you, you know in your heart that you can do it. Um, and, and so doing the runner jobs kind of like your your opportunity to prove that you you have all those skills and like Ted said um, just showing that you're a, a great person to work with um, the company I was at um, a lot of the time it was it was based on personality as much as um, as much as anything you can have a lot of incredible people applying for work and you have to think if I'm going to be out doing this job in a very stressful situation making sure that you will you show yourself as being a, a great person to be there with them I was just going to add one la one last thing to that that we were talking earlier is that quite a lot of people that I know who've got into the industry in Bristol um, got runner jobs at facilities houses. So not not always with a company. You know, Georgie was at Icon, which makes a lot of wildlife shows, but um, films of '59 and and um, Evolutions and whatever. You know, you get in there, you're kind of rubbing shoulders. That's where you know Blue Planet Two and the Post all went through. You know, so I, I think just kind of get get yourself into the into the TV world as you guys are doing. But if you want to make that transition into wildlife, then maybe going to a company that's more wildlife-facing 
and look for those opportunities. The only other thing I'd add as well is ideas, as well as kind of having, uh, you know, making your own film. I think when you approach a company or whatever, come along with some ideas. They're the currency of, of, of the industry. If you don't, you know, without new ideas, you know, none of us would have jobs. So um, be kind of proactive and, and kind of sell yourself when, when you kind of get your foot in the door. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. We'll probably mill around. I think another session's coming in but we'll mill around for a few minutes afterwards. If some of you have some additional questions, then please do come and, and ask us. We're really you know, happy to, to kind of um, answer whatever questions you have. Um, I'm supposed to thank our sponsor, Dres Dresd, I think, or Dresden or someone. It's, um, is, it, uh, is that your, Dres? Um, it sounds amazing. It's a company that recycles film sets. And if any of you have been on, you know, on dramas, most of those used to go into the landfill and now this company recycle them so and they've sponsored this session so thank you um and i want to thank bafta kumri uh, for the session but uh, and vicky she's not here but vicky organized it all um but most importantly i want to thank the panelists um without whom we wouldn't have had such sage advice so thank you very much <laughs>